through Haggai chapter 1 tonight, chapter 2 next week, because there's only two chapters in Haggai, that makes it nice. Uh, we will not be able to give as much time to Zechariah. Um, but I know some of you maybe were in uh, Phil's group and you've walked through it in more detail, but uh, when we come back after the new year, we're going to come back in and we'll look at Zechariah for a couple weeks and then finish out Ezra is what we'll do. So, uh, But I will have us in Ezra chapter 5 uh, for some review for just a few minutes in the beginning so we can turn to both of those. So let's go ahead and pray and we'll ask God to, uh, to bless our time. Father, we thank you for uh, this privilege that we have to get together for a few more minutes on a Sunday and look at your word. And we know both Old and New Testaments, God, are filled with information for us and things that really bring you glory. And so I'm asking that tonight as we analyze uh, Haggai, your prophet, and your word through him, uh, even though it was written so long ago, you would help it to be meaningful to us and helpful and encouraging to us. And uh, may it stir us up just in the same way it did for your people uh, so long ago. And so we ask you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, now before we jump into Haggai, we're going to look, let's, let's just look at the very tail end of chapter 4 and chapter 5 again. And just as a reminder of what we've done here. The theme of chapter 4 was opposition. That's the theme of the whole chapter. The work of God was going on. Uh, there was probably enthusiasm in the beginning. And they're building there for a number of months up to probably two years and, but from that very time that they began uh, to build, all the way through the book of Nehemiah, a 90-year period. So they're building the temple in Ezra, and then in Nehemiah you've got the building of the uh, wall around Jerusalem. That whole period is covered in Ezra chapter 5 of opposition, showing how the people of the land, and who do those people end up being? What do we call them from the New Testament? The, op- the adversaries? The Samaritans, right? These were the Samaritans, these uh, implanted people into those no- the northern area and the northern tribes there uh, by the Assyrian Empire so many years before. And they're opposing the work. And we learned about opposition some. We thought about it, talked about it, that whenever we're endeavoring in the work of God, there's always opposition. Uh, there's going to be physical adversaries, but we also learned, according to connecting Ezra chapter 4 with Daniel chapter 10, that there was spiritual opposition going on at the same time through the prince of Persia, as he's referred to. There's this whole spiritual battle going on. And uh, the adversaries of uh, the Israelites were just uh, a part of that, but just as though Paul says in Ephesians 6 to us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and such, the same thing is happening uh, there as well as here, that there is this cosmic battle of good versus evil, of, um, of God versus the devil. Well, we know God wins, and it's kind of a, in some ways somewhat of a comical uh, opposition because 
The devil even has to ask permission of his enemy to do what he wants to do. We learn things like that in, in Job, and it's really fascinating to see. But let's ask this question. So, so at the end of chapter 4, verse 24, the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, about a 16-year period there. Uh, between chapters 4 and 5, where the work ceases, okay? And that's where we pick up in chapter 5. But before we go into this, let me ask this question. The opposition, partly from the adversaries, and as we'll learn in Ezra in a, in a few minutes, is partly because of the, just the sin of God's people, but the opposition seems to have won over, right? At the end of chapter 4, they stopped working eventually, why does God, I'll just open this question up, and I'm, I'm not necessarily looking for a right or wrong answer just to get us thinking. Why does God allow opposition to his work that even at times seems to prevail to some degree or to accomplish its purpose, which is to, like in this example, get the people of God to stop working on the house of God. Why would God allow this? What purposes do you think that he would have in that? I think because when, every, when everything comes together again, even in our own life, we face opposition and stuff, we go through the hard times and stuff, but it's when we get through that opposition and that time of trouble that we see God working. Hmm. Yep. Just increases our faith. Right. And I think that probably here also that when it finally comes around and they're able to get going again, that they can actually say, This is the hand of God mm. and and their their praise for him yeah. resumes. Right. It, isn't that interesting that we can see we look back and see that even the opposition or something that ceased, God was still working. As the, because we need to understand that the work didn't need to cease. God could have kept it going, but He's serving His purposes even in it, right? He's working through it. Yes? Uh, along that, I almost had the same thing, but sometimes the opposition realizes you're not such bad guys after all. You're not trying to change them. You're trying to do what you're doing. And then there's also the thing that you get your when you're trying to do something you get yourself a little bit more organized because it's kind of a mess to move mm. we still haven't unpacked boxes from five years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good yeah good jason Good. Yeah, because, and that's where we'll go with Haggai, because he's going to get them to consider their ways, right? So he teaches them and us through it. One more, Sandy. Yes. 
Yeah, it builds faith. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Very good. Very good. So we have um, purposes in both the opposition and sometimes through, well, all the time, God's purposes rule and reign even through the failures of His people. That through those 16 years of His people really failing, because they're about to be chastised for uh, stopping the work in Haggai. That's what we're going to look at in Haggai's book. But they're going to be chastised for this. But that God had purposes in it. One thing I found that was, was drawn out from the person who I told you did this curriculum that I was sort of following the outline to. If you remember way back uh, on one of the lessons, we did the 70 years of Jeremiah timetable. Uh, you remember J- Jeremiah said that, uh, well, the Lord said that there'd be 70 years before the temple would be rebuilt or whatever. And that was fulfilled in two ways. One of the ways was from a certain date, uh, and I didn't look it up because I just saw this earlier, but I forgot what it was. But one of those ways from a certain date to the completion of the temple was exactly 70 years. Now, with God delaying that timetable by 16 years, what seemed like a setback actually helped fulfill His promise in His perfect timing. And we remember in things even like we learned about this morning with the arrival of of the Christ at the fullness of time, that there was that exact uh, millisecond in which God said the time is complete, it is filled up, And now the Messiah can arrive, and we know God has a divine timetable, and sometimes it seems frustrating to us that God is letting progress not go forward or things aren't happening quite the way we want. But we must keep in mind that God is in control, and He has a perfect plan and perfect timetable for things and uses even the, you know, what we'll see with the people of Israel, the failures of His people to accomplish His purposes. And then last week, remember in chapter 5, we talked about the the rebuilding begins anew. In verse 1, we learned about Haggai and Zechariah, these prophets that God sent in now to uh, get the people going again. And what is the main theme that we kind of said comes out of chapter 5? Does anybody remember? One of the main themes is to demonstrate the power of God's Word among God's people for the accomplishing of God's work. That when God wanted them to get going again, He sends in His Word. And we even learned in, in, like in chapter 2 of, of Haggai where it says the people complete, or I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 6 of Ezra, um, they completed the temple. Where does that say? One second, I'll show it to you. The temple finished and dedicated. Um, Okay, Uh, verse 14, the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. Uh, They were... We saw how throughout that whole time as they were building, the prophets were right there supporting them. That was one of the words from Ezra chapter 5. These prophets are supporting them with the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God. It plays such an integral part 
God's word given and taught plays such an integral part in the people of God. And, uh, and we learned a little bit about Jesus giving shepherd teachers to the church to teach for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry until we're all built uh, up into maturity and into Christ-likeness. So, so anyway, he, he sends in these prophets and we saw the power of God's work. Now, it is interesting to note, now before we go to Haggai 1, it is interesting to note uh, that the work that they were doing was not really their work. This, this building of the temple was not going to be stopped. This was God's plan. And it is the same with the wall. Uh, the opposition couldn't stop it, and neither could his own people who just kind of threw up their hands and give up and turn, go into their own businesses. This couldn't stop. God is a God of sovereignty, he says in Isaiah chapter 46, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. So at the end of chapter 4, the reader who knows the Lord should already be saying, How's the Lord going to f- get these people going again? It's not like we're saying, Oh man, maybe the temple would never be built or whatever, right? We know that God had an, a purpose in uh, uh, rebuilding the temple and that this was going to happen. And we just needed to keep reading to see how God was going to make this happen once again, right? My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. He will do what needs to be done in order to fulfill his plan and his purpose, okay? Now, let's talk about Haggai uh, for a little bit. So if we can turn to this, uh, the prophet Haggai, third from the end of the Old Testament. You only have Haggai and Zechariah, and they were contemporaries and prophesied at the same time. And then later on, we'll come in Malachi, and then it goes silent for uh, 400 years until John the Baptist would be the next true prophet that would arrive on, on the scene after 400 years. So we have this prophet Haggai. Uh, no, we know very little about him other than what we read in the two chapters here of his um, book. And this is, uh, this, the, the theme of this book, really, as we should expect, is that the people of God need to get their act together and get back to work on the temple. That's the theme. But as we'll see next week, there's even elements of prophesying about a future time and the greatness of the temple that would be. And, of course, we know he's pointing also ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that they were to see that what they were doing had implications not just for them, but for down the road in God's greater purposes in this world and for this world, okay? So we'll get into that more in chapter 2. But let's just take the time to read chapter 1. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? 
Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the uh, ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then... Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month and the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Okay, so that is uh, chapter 1, and, and we'll, we'll look at chapter 2 uh, next week. But now notice, uh, in, uh, uh, we didn't read through chapter 2, but let me point this out. The way this book is divided up, these two chapters, is really with, to some degree with time markers. So you'll see in verse one, chapter 1, verse 1, it's the sixth month of the first day of the month. Okay, And then you have um, the second year of Darius. It's marking it by that. Second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month. And then if you look at verse 15, it shows how the word of the Lord came to them on that first, uh, uh, the first day of the month, and then in verse 15, it was on the 24th day of the month that the people got busy, okay? Uh, and there's that time marker. Then again in chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, and then in Chapter 2, verse 10, you have another time marker. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by the Haggai the prophet. And then in verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Why does God do this, especially in this book? But we see this in other places in Scripture. But I think one thing that it's doing is that it is, when, when, when we're getting such a specific day, right? Isn't that interesting? Specific day, you can mark it, you can determine who was king at that time, and God is making it very clear what happens uh, when. It does give historicity to the book. And in some places, things like that, those time markers in connection with some world leader like Darius or Cyrus, actually later on down the road as things were discovered, as archaeology went on, and we talked about this a while ago, 
it actually lends credence and credibility to the Bible as not just a bunch of fables or stories, but this was real events in a real time, in a real place, through real people. It's really given it a historical element. So many people that are skeptical of the Bible, maybe non, non-Christians, they're, they're skeptical of the Bible because they refuse to read it to any degree as something of history. Like These books are books of history, uh, and there are time markers in there that can be corresponded to. So I think that's one reason. It, Yes, yeah. And I think part of that was God ingraining it there so that we could keep track of these things, right? So it, it gives some historicity to it. Uh, it reveals God's timetables and, and what we've talked about, even in the 70 years of returning, different things that happened. God's timetable is very important to God. But in this book, on a very practical level, what you'll notice is that I think it is three of those time markers, three or four of those time markers, Oh, before of those time markers, are connected directly to Haggai receiving the word of the Lord. I don't know if you noticed that. So the very first one was like that. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came uh, here to uh, Haggai. Uh, in, in addition, you have that again in chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2. 2 verse 10, it's marking off what we will call the four sermons of Haggai. There are really four sermons within Haggai uh, marked off by very clear indicators of when the, Lord, when the word came to Haggai. Does that make sense? It's a very neat, neat kind of organized way to just break up the book and, and give it some understanding. The messages came uh, generally to Israel's leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And we looked at these two last week. Zerubbabel and Joshua. Uh, Zerubbabel being the civic leader from the kingly line of David, but of course they don't have a king at this point. But he's in that uh, natural place where he can be leader. And then Joshua or Jeshua, depending on how it's uh, spelled in the particular passage you're looking at, this was the high priest, the priestly leader. And so the word was coming to, as he says, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, right, and to Joshua. And um, then the leaders, of course, were to uh, uh, take what they're hearing and they are to transmit it to the people in one way or another. Uh, but it is interesting to note that because the leaders apparently were also not doing what they were supposed to do in this situation. And the leaders were supposed to begin doing what they're supposed to do and then all of the people will follow them. And there is a principle there. I mean, in the New Testament, elders and pastors are told, you shepherd the congregation uh, being an example to the flock. You are not up there to just say what everybody should be doing and you're not doing it, 
right? There's not supposed to be this dichotomy between what you're teaching to everybody else to do and what you're not doing. I think the Word of God comes to the leaders of God, and they are to be the ones uh, leading the people of God by them, for themselves um, doing it. That's why in verse 12 of chapter 1, then Zerubbabel and Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. It began with these leaders. So, what was the problem here? Um, the main problem, if we will look at this first sermon, look at verse 2. So, this is the first sermon, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, and here he is addressing, I think, everyone here, referring to the Israelites, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They're saying they have stopped for 16 years, and if you were to say to them, or ask them, why aren't why aren't we working on the temple? Well, it's not yet time to work on the temple, okay? What's a big problem with that? They're already there, they're already there but what are they there for? <laughs> exactly. This was, I mean, if they're saying that this is somehow in God's design not time for them to rebuild the temple, then they're out of their minds because this is what the Lord actually brought them back for. This is what Jeremiah's prophecies were about, and even Isaiah's prophecies a century and a half before about Cyrus sending them back. It is interesting how at times we, as God's people, can make excuses, can we not, for why we're not doing what we know we're supposed to be doing, and we can sometimes blame circumstances or other people or opposition or not just quite the right time it is and it's clearly what they're doing here because next what God does is call them out on this right their whole purpose was that in God sending them back was to rebuild the temple opposition happened and again with God's people should always be expected but the opposition cannot be the reason you stop doing the work that God has told you to do you know, it's similar with, with Peter and the apostles. They go out preaching about Christ, and the opposition begins right away. And uh, they're, they're um, assaulting and harming and putting in jail these apostles, and they said, you quit preaching Jesus. And Peter says, well, we've got to obey God, not man. The opposition cannot stop us. But in this case, it did. It stopped them, and so... God is really calling them on the carpet about this. And uh, it, it also shows that uh, this was something they were thinking about and probably mildly convicted about at times because they had an answer for it. Why are we rebuilding the temple? It's not quite time. They're clearly thinking about it because the Lord says this is what they're saying. It's not time to do it, but they know it's right. But then look at verse 3 because we begin to identify the problem in verses 3 and 4 in, in verse 9 as well. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? 
Um, and then in the end of verse 9, because of my house it lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So do you remember uh, a number of weeks, months, whatever it's been ago now, and we said when they got there and they, begin, they, they set the priority. Remember they, they got there and they, they um, laid the, built the altar and they laid the foundation of the temple and they made it their priority and we made this big deal and we said, because think about it, they would have had a lot of other things they needed to do. They would have had to establish means of income. They would have had to feed their families. They'd had all these other things, but they knew what their priority was. They knew what they were supposed to be. And somewhere in that couple year time, they lost track of that. According to God, what became their priority? Their own houses, right? And I always think even my own house, I'm so glad paneling went out of style because clearly God doesn't like it, right? We panel our houses. You clearly want a drywall for people in their houses or whatever it would be. But um, no, here they were. They were really investing in their own homes. And the, that was their priority. That's what they were giving themselves to at this point. And when they'd be asked, why aren't you building the temple? Why aren't we working on the ministry of the Lord? Ah, oh, it's not time to do that right now. You know, I got to get just one more wall of paneling up in my house, so to speak, right? Or, uh, or whatever. And they were busying themselves with their own business and affairs and their own interests. And they just left that, the house of the Lord sit, okay? So God calls them out on that. Their priorities had gone off track. And what it really reveals, too, is that their whole problem wasn't their opposition in, the, in that the Samaritans, their adversaries. That's not really what stopped them. It did to a degree, but we know now from what God reveals about their hearts is that this was really an issue in their hearts, and they were very uh, willing to cooperate with the adversaries and quit building because really what their flesh was craving was just to make their lives as comfortable as possible and busy themselves with their own things while the house of the Lord sits in ruins. With these misaligned uh, priorities, what God does in verses 5 and verses, uh, verse 7 is He has this phrase, Now therefore, look at verse 5, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. And he repeats that again in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In Hebrew, it's very intimate. It's like uh, intimate. It's very much in your heart to take this into consideration now. Look at what you're doing. Look at what's happening. And you think about this uh, in what you're, how, the trajectory you're in and your priorities. He's calling them to repentance, to a real soul searching here. And I think that in our flesh, we have such a craving for comfort and ease that uh, we're afraid to do soul searching like that at times and really consider our ways and really take it to heart and think about it because we're afraid to see how misaligned our priorities can actually become, Right? And so as the people of God, we've got to watch for that. And I think this message, every time you read Haggai, every time you think about it, is just a, a, a call to all of us constantly. Consider your ways now. 
Consider your priorities in your life. Because even though we haven't been called to build the temple, so to speak, we are still called in this world to give our lives to the Lord Jesus. As we said in our messages, He is God, which means we give our entire being to Him, right? We have been called to do His work, His ministry in our world, even right down into our business, our places of employment, our school should be our discipleship for Him, right? It should be giving ourselves to Him, and I think it's helpful for us to consider our ways. It's interesting to note what God had done with them in frustrating all of their self-gratifying plans, didn't He? If you look at verse 6, He says, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. And then again in verses 9 through 11, he says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you, you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. Well, each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God had actually called for a drought. Everything they tried to do seemed to be foiled. Uh, they had things they, they would earn, but it seemed to be just you know, coming out the other end, they'd have their bag full of money and it's just pouring out the bottom, you see. And it must have been frustrating to them as they pursued their comfort to see that God was withholding blessing from them, wanting them to consider their ways. And there are times in our lives when God brings us through times of chastening and chastisement and frustration of things. And in those times, maybe it would be helpful to consider our ways to see if our providential God is working in such a way to get our attention, so to speak, and to get us back on track with what He has for us because it's so easy for us to get back on track. But then it's interesting in the remainder of the verses after the people obey, begin to obey in verse 12, right? As soon as they hear this, God's Spirit works in them they repent and they get busy going and doing what they're supposed to do again. It's amazing. Remember, this is how the Word of God works. could be as quiet as you just sitting in your living room or wherever reading your Bible and all of a sudden God puts a consider your ways passage before you and points out right to your heart. Like you could have read that a million times and it meant nothing to you and you read it that morning and it's like the Lord is saying right from that passage to you, consider your ways and get doing what you're supposed to be doing in this area, right? Stirs them up. They obey Him. The people at the end of verse 12 feared the Lord. And then in verse 13, listen to this encouraging, gracious message. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. That's really gracious, isn't it? The Lord rebukes them. The Lord pinpoints their heart issue. The people hear it. They respond with repentance. Man, we have messed up. Let's get busy. And then immediately the message from the Lord is, I'm with you. I'm still with you. 
I haven't abandoned you. So there's this idea, it, it would have been an encouraging reminder to the people of God. Okay, good. Questions or thoughts? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I think probably the author of Ezra was pointing that out, right, when he said it, they, that they were there supporting them. How are we supporting the work of God? It's not just by rebuke. That's helpful, and it works to get us going. But then when you're going and you're doing what you're supposed to do, what do you need? That constant support and really that concept of I am with you. This is why Jesus said when he gave the big commission to his church of what we are commissioned to go and do, he says the very last thing he leaves them with, I am with you all the days, even until the end of the age, so that his people would always know when they're about the work of God, no matter what is happening or how people are responding, that he's with them. So it's good. That reminder of the encouraging presence of God. Good. Anything else there on chapter 1? Thoughts or questions? Yes, ma'am. That's right. And that's that's excellent point. We are to obey God and not man. And then we experience the blessings of God and the comfort of His presence. That's right. All right. Well, with that, let's go ahead and close. Next week, we'll, we'll finish out the year with uh, chapter 2. So... Father, thank you for your goodness to us and your grace and your love and how you are just so consistent with us and patient with us. Uh, we praise you for that and we thank you for it. And I pray that we would this week consider our ways, uh, that we would be um, busy in ourselves with your work and what you've called us to do, that we would not be a people guilty of the sin of omission, uh, knowing what we should do and not doing it. And I pray that your spirit would just gently guide us in these things for your glory and the good of your people. In the name of Jesus, amen.